God is passionate for His glory. And so He says in verse 6, you have heard now all, you have heard now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things. What's he saying? He says, I declared it before it happened. You knew what I said. And now you're living because Cyrus has now come to, to prominence. And he has now said, you can go back to Babylon. I mean, you can go back to Jerusalem. Sorry, out of Babylon. You've seen it. You've experienced that God's word came to pass. And now he says, you've heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things. Hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. See, we are so bent to try to get credit for ourselves because we're so stinking insecure. It's just, please, I'm valuable because of what I know. I'm valuable because of what I can contribute. No! God is valuable. Rest in Him. That's all the acceptance and value you need. But the clawing is, lest you would say, Behold, I knew it. I'm smart. Look at me. I know that temptation. I've been defensive before. Because I wanted somebody to know that I knew something. It's insecurity in my own life. Wanting somebody to accept me because of what I can know or what I can do. And God says, I'm not going to give my glory to anyone else. And so verse 8, He says, You have never heard, you have never known from of old. Your ear has not been opened. To what? To those new things He's talking about in verse 6. So we got like, okay, what's the new things? Well, he keeps going in verse 8. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. I knew you were going to fail. And not only did I know you were going to actively go against me in treachery, but you, it says, that from before birth you were called a rebel. You're a sinner not only by choice, but by nature because you are in Adam. Sinner by nature and by choice. You're a rebel, not going after God. So, let me pose the question to you. If I said someone has maligned your character and they have talked bad about you, and because of what they, the lies they told, you lost the job promotion, and you've been blackballed, you will never get kind of promoted again. And now, you have the ability to determine the outcome of that person who talked bad about you. Somehow, this is what's happened. And now you have a choice. What are you going to do? Many in the world would say, okay, it's time to give them what they got coming. Right? And, and there would be a sense of justice. Well, they should receive the consequences of their poor actions. They should probably be fired. And all. I mean, we can dream a dream of revenge, right? We do that a lot. So God, who is perfectly just and holy, when His people from birth are rebellious and they intentionally walk in treachery, what is his just and holy response? What's a just response from a judge who sits and knows this guy is guilty of murder? The just response is, you are sent away for life. 
The just response is punishment. So, we're walking along. We're reading the book of Isaiah. And it says, I knew you were going to be walking in treachery. And from your birth, you're a rebel. So the next thing we would expect to read while we're reading through Isaiah is that, and God, for the sake of His name, He punished the people. Look what it says. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. But you deserve to be cut off. It's almost like those moments when your neck snaps. I mean, it's like you're driving down and all of a sudden, out of the corner of eye, you see this big gray thing and you look over and there's an elephant walking down the middle of downtown Raleigh. I mean, you might get in a wreck, right? Not because the elephant is in your way, but because you're like, what in the world? Yeah. Your neck should snap at something so shocking. And uniquely... Sometimes we're not shocked by this. Of course, God would defer His anger because He loves me. Because I'm good. What we mean by He loves me is not His character and His nature. We mean because I deserve it. We mean I've compared myself to my neighbor and I'm a pretty good guy. We believe He should defer Himself and his, his anger because of something in us. But that's not what He says. That's not what He says. He doesn't say, I defer my anger because of your actions. He doesn't say, I defer my anger because I need you to do something for me or to supply what is lacking in me. God doesn't say, I'm not going to cut you off because, here's how we treat people at times, you've been good to me, I'll be good to you. Every bit of that is totally dependent upon our performance. And none of that is in here. Every bit of that is upon our performance. So that if we perform well, God does good. If we don't, we're crushed. That's not how he's talking here. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. We would have expected to say, because I am lovely, I will defer. Because these people are lovely, I will defer my anger. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For my name's sake. And, that's, we don't understand that. Because... We are conditioned to live for our own namesake. And God here says, it is for my praise, for my namesake, that I do this. I will not give it to another. Ultimately, the reason he says for my namesake is because there's no more firm foundation for us to bank our lives on than upon him. We cannot bank his mercy upon our goodness. We bank Upon his mercy because that's who he is. That's his nature. He said he was going to do that for anyone who trusts in him. And he will pour it out upon you. We lean upon his name. And here's why his name is at stake. I'm going to read Ezekiel 36 verses 19. It's kind of a, 
It helps us understand verse 9. It just kind of spells it out. Why is his name at stake? Ezekiel 36 verse 19 says this, I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. This is because Israel was rebellious, and he sent them away. Right? You following this? They were exiled. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that, how did they profane my holy name? Well, they did it in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. How was God's name at stake? God said they would have a land. That was Israel's land. And from an outside world looking in, it appears as if God can't keep His word. He can't keep His people in their land. And who does it look like is stronger than God? It'd be the Babylonians who came and crushed them and pulled them out. That's how the nations are talking. God knows that Babylon was an instrument in His hand to do His bidding of punishment upon a rebellious people. He's already declared too that He will destroy them and crush them as a power in His own timing through Cyrus. But this is how His name is at stake. It looks as if God can't keep His people in their land. So Ezekiel continues, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake. (laughs) O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. My holiness is at stake. Me being able to keep my word is at stake. My glory is at stake, God says. I will do it for my glory. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. You see? You've been rebellious. You had to receive punishment. The fact that you're over here is your fault, Israel. And you are profaning my name. So I will rescue you and take you back into my land for the sake of my name. Because your very presence over here reflects an opposite story of the one that God has told. That these are my people and I will keep them. But God knows. His plan is a perfect one. You had to receive punishment for sin. And yet He has this plan that He will bring them back into Jerusalem. So, there's not only a message of of rebuke, But there's a message of, for the sake of my name, I will redeem and deliver this people. I will get them to the other side, so to speak. I will get them back home. How will he do that? He will do it through a path of refinement. So the first message is a message of rebuke, but the second message is a message of refinement. And I get that from verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. What does that mean, not as silver? When you refine silver through intense heat, you remove the impurity so it shines forth as a brighter, more pure, radiant metal. Okay? He's saying that this refinement process will be similar, but it won't be physical. Okay? It's different and it's similar. So it's similar, 
and that I will refine you, I will remove spiritual impurities from you that you might shine forth as my redeemed one. It's different in that this isn't a physical fire that I'm going to put up on you. Because he goes on and he says, I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. It's not literal body being melted. It's not like exfoliation. It is spiritual. Suffering produces a heart that pulls away from other images that might try to deliver and pulls you towards God. Do you see how it's not like silver? It's not this physical fire. But it is like silver in that impurities are pulled away and that you will be refined. Spiritually refined. And he says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This idea of refinement is This purging, purifying, examining so that you will be holy gods. He will not share you. He's jealous for you to be His because that's where your greatest joy will be. And so sometimes that must come through discipline or chastisement or pain. But it will be for your good in love. Now, we were um, a week ago, two weeks ago, my wife and myself and Byron and Bree Glassby, we went to a pastors and wives retreat in San Diego with the Treasure in Christ Together Church Planting Network. And while we were there, there's about 40 some odd pastors and wives there. And it was just meant to uh, celebrate what all God was doing in the uh, 11 to 15 churches that are in the network and to also talk about where God might be heading and just to get, receive some refreshment. And so in the mornings, the schedule was really light and it was there that we were suffering for Jesus sitting on this little beach looking out at the bay. Uh-huh, I know that just blessed you, didn't it? You're like, I don't want to listen to his story anymore. I'm a little bitter, but uh, let's, let's try to keep going. We were sitting there and my wife was sharing just some things that were going on in her life, some difficulties and things. And she said, I want you to read this by Charles Spurgeon. It was such an encouragement to me. And her faith strengthened my faith in that moment. And he is specifically addressing what this idea of refinement looks like in the Christian life. Because I think sometimes when we hear God is passionate for His glory, we hear indifferent and almost no feeling. We hear, we don't hear compassion and softness of God. We hear kind of king, authority. We don't hear gentleness. And so of course, when you hear refinement, when you process it through those lenses, you hear anger, you hear aggression, you hear kind of the disappointed father kind of thing that doesn't have kind of any love exuding in his disappointment. That's not the picture here. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11 paints this picture of what this refinement is in verse 10. It should be on the screen behind me. It says, God says, for I am with you to save you. 
says the Lord. To say that you're being refined is a comment that God is right beside you and He hasn't left you. He says in Jeremiah 30, 11, I will make a full end of the nations among whom I've scattered you. I've sent you away in exile, but of you I will not make a full end. What will you do instead of totally obliterating me, which I deserve? I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. And so hear Charles Spurgeon's words. He says this, To be left uncorrected, unrefined, not disciplined, would be a fatal sign. It would prove that the Lord had said, oh, he gives himself to idols. We'll just let him go. Let him just go to the idols. And then Spurgeon prays, God grant that such may never be our portion. And here's a phrase. Uninterrupted prosperity is a thing to cause fear and trembling. As many as God tenderly loves, He rebukes and chastens. Those for whom He has no esteem, He allows to fatten themselves without fear like bulls headed for the slaughter. It is in love that our Heavenly Father uses the rod upon His children. Yet see, the correction is in measure, says the prophet Jeremiah. It's in measure. He gives us love without measure. There's no end to His love. There's no bottom to it. There's no parameters. He pours out all of His love. There's no guardrails on His love. He just pours it out. But on His discipline, there's measure. There's parameters. This far and no further. Well, what are the parameters? What measures the parameters? Spurgeon goes on to say, it is the measure of his wisdom, the measure of sympathy, the measure of love by which our chastisement, refinement, discipline is regulated. And so he says, far be it from us to rebel against such a loving God who would not let us go to our own whims, but says, I am with you to redeem you And I will pass you through a furnace of refinement, a furnace of affliction, that you might be wholly mine. And I'm not doing it as an angry man. Doing it as a glorious God filled with wisdom and sympathy and love for you. Because for my children, this is how I treat my children. God's message is a message of refinement. And so those of you who are struggling, struggling in suffering, struggling in your pain, God speaks a message that says, you don't have to have it figured out. But you live for Him. You trust Him. You walk with Him. You declare where you can see His faithfulness. You ask others to pray that you do see His faithfulness. When you're tempted to constantly complain and act against God, you plead with God to help you put your hand over your mouth. And when you are burdened and you are filled with doubt and pain, God says, 
You just share it with me and I will take it. Bring to me all of your fears and your tears. Because I want all of you. God's glory is not only seen in being a triumphant ruler, but being, being the shepherd that comes alongside and picks us up. He wants us to see all of Him so that we might display all of Him to the world. And so the message goes, look at verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am He, I am the first, and I am the last. This is my glory, Israel. Hear it. I am He. I have no beginning. I have no end. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth. When I say sunrise, it rises. When I say stars shine, they shine. When I say winds blow, they blow. When I say bird fly, they fly. They stand up at my call. I am He. There is no other. This is my glory, He says. And Israel, listen. Assemble yourselves, verse 14, all of you, and listen. And now he begins to address their specific situation. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. Who's the him? It's actually King Cyrus. We'll see it later on as we read. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. Cyrus will be raised up and he will perform his purpose. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in the way. His will will be accomplished. Cyrus's. And that part of it will be also that Israel is sent out of Babylon to, back to Israel. And so he says, if I can do all of this, if I've declared before it happened and it's now happening, verse 16, draw near, near to me then. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. <laughs> I haven't been quiet about my instructions. You know what, this, what you're supposed to be doing. And from the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Remember, we don't know who this speaker is, but come next week, we're going to see that it is going to be identified with the suffering servant king. The one whom the Spirit of God dwells within. And he says that I will work God's perfect will, not by the power of a sword, which Cyrus had, but by the power of the Spirit of God. And so God speaks His last message. Thus says the Lord, He not only rebukes and refines, but His refining will lead His faith filled people to see him as redeemer the holy one of israel i am the lord your god who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go you just see how he's caring and yet he's also pleading verse 18 oh that you would pay attention haven't you thought that with children before oh that you would have listened oh i didn't know that was going to hurt me so bad i've heard my kids say oh that you would listen Because if you listen and pay attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river flowing throughout your heart. And your righteousness, like the waves of a sea, they would overflow in your life. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. And their name would never be cut off or destroyed 
You wouldn't have been exiled. You wouldn't have gone through all of this trial. And so now he calls them out and he says, go out. I told you what was going to happen and it's here. Cyrus is raised up. He's given you the command to go back to Israel and he says, go out. Go out of Babylon, flee from Chaldea and declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth that the Lord is the Redeemer. He has delivered me. Redeem means to set free. To pull out of slavery. And as you're walking that road back home, you say with all of your might to all the nations around, it's the Lord who pulled me out of here. He is bringing me back home. He's keeping His Word. That's what you should hear. God is keeping His Word. He is keeping His Word. They were suffering. They needed to know He is keeping His Word. And look at what He does in verse 21. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He took care of him. He even made water flow out of a rock. And he split the rock and water gushed out. He took care of his people. What did he want them to do in this moment? Rehearse the faithfulness of God. I want to end with a story. We were in San Diego again. And I'm part of the leadership team there. And so the leadership team had to show up a, a day early. Had some meetings. And that left my wife... And Byron and Bree with freedom in San Diego with a rental car. Sounds dangerous, I know, but they had it. And they were like, well, what do we do? We had just feasted on some really good food and it was like, okay, where are we going to go? And so they began to brainstorm. Well, what can we do? Well, it's a pretty countryside. Why don't we look? We saw some big houses uh, someplace. Why don't we Google large mansions in San Diego? And let's go look at big houses. So they said, okay, that's what they're going to do. So they Google it up and it gives them some directions. Well, they kind of get turned around and they're like, I don't see squat around here. You know, they're just driving and driving. And then they see, while they're driving, they see this little sign that says Mount Helix Nature Park. Well, they said, well, maybe up, up there, there might be what we're looking for. So they keep driving up this windy road and all of a sudden they come and they begin to see these rock steps. They were like, hey, let's get out. You know, no agenda. Let's get out. So they park the car and they start walking up these rock steps. I mean, you're in the middle of San Diego. Obviously, you see rock steps like this. And so they go up to the top of the steps. And as they look, they see what you see way up in the distance. A 15-foot concrete cross at the top of these rocks. And I asked my friend Tim, who is a pastor there in San Diego, he says, there's almost never clouds in the sky. So the fact that you get this kind of cloudy, beautiful sunset is remarkable. And they get up to the top of this hill, and what they see over the entire hill is the cityscape of San Diego. And all of a sudden, and they articulated it this way, we went looking for earthly mansions, and we saw something so much greater. And their cell phones died. Best gift that happened to them, they said. And they sat there for 30 to 45 minutes and just worshipped. Just praised God for who He was. Just prayed. Just sat in silence and looked. And you want to hear something else that's miraculous. Earlier that morning, we had gotten a call back here in Raleigh 
that our little girl had spiked a fever, which is not a good sign regarding her disease. And that just hit us like a punch in the stomach, that things were going backwards. And a friend here at the church in our community group had been burdened to pray for us when Dana, my wife, had sent out, we just need your prayers. This friend texts her while she's up here. And the text reads this, I was burdened to pray for you. And as I was praying, God gave me a vision. And it was a vision of you standing on a rock, clinging to the base of a cross. And I just wanted to let you know that God is firm for you. And He loves you. In that moment, God wanted to be crystal clear. This is my glory at work. I will not give it to another. And I love you through some of the greatest pain that you might be experiencing. But I am with you. And I show you my glory in this moment. So that whether health plummets or whether things get better, you will know that I am for you, I am with you, and I am faithful to my word. God is a redeeming God. And He does not want us left alone, trapped in our addictions, trapped in trying to have some person save us or deliver us. He will redeem us out of that slavery through a path of refinement. But His redemption, although at a moment when you trust in Jesus, He saves you and rescues you, it's a journey. He will get you to the end. And it's on that last day that you will be fully free of sin. You will be fully redeemed in the presence of God. And He will fully be your Redeemer. So hear from His Word today. Live for His glory. Let's pray. Father, I just ask now that in this moment, in this moment that we would rehearse the stories of Your faithfulness. Circumstances will come and go. This world is a broken world. Sin abounds. People hate Our feelings get hurt. Our minds are loose. Our anger boils up. We say things we shouldn't say. We let bitterness come into the heart. God, this world is broken and a mess. We are rebellious and treacherous in our ways. And yet we call out to You for the sake of Your name. Defer Your anger. Refine us as Your people. And we trust that Your Word is true. You will get us to the end. You will be our Redeemer, just as You already are for anyone who trusts in You. And so, Father, it's in this moment that I ask, I ask, O God, that You will show us Your greatness. And that what will make the things of the world strangely dim is the picture of Your faithfulness, Your trueness to Your Word, declaring the end from the beginning. What will push away our doubt will be Your glory. So Father, I ask that we would see Your glory clearer today. And we would know our single purpose is to show You off as long as You give us breath. 
Help us to ask what that looks like moment by moment so that you get the glory and we get the joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.